Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. The Peter Schiff Show. The U.S. stock market closed early today, ahead of tomorrow's 4th of July holiday, when the markets are, of course, closed and Americans are out celebrating Independence Day, the birth of the nation, July 4th, 1776. You know, I love the 4th of July as a holiday. You know, it is something that is a American holiday. I mean, obviously, other countries have similar dates to commemorate the birth of their nation or their independence. Our Canadian neighbors to the north, they just celebrated Canada Day on Monday. But it's different from other holidays where the whole world is celebrating at the same time. You know, whether you have New Year's Day or they're celebrating Christmas or Easter, you know, religious holidays that, that everybody shares. It's, you know, a, a, an American holiday like, like Thanksgiving, which is another reason that I, that I like that holiday. Because, again, it's something that really celebrates part of the American experience. But one of the things or the problems I have with the 4th of July is not only does it make me feel good about what happened back in July 4th of 1776 and you know am I honored to have been born in the nation that was conceived in liberty and I you know and I and I feel you know you go back and you think about the sacrifices that were made by the people that signed on beneath John Hancock's name to that document uh, where they risked their lives and their fortunes. I mean, these were wealthy men, uh, you know, having a good life. And that was treason to put your name on the Declaration of Independence. I mean, if we had lost that war, right, the king would have, you know, killed all the uh, founding fathers uh, as being traitors. 
And so you think back at, at what was accomplished and the sacrifices that were made and the, the incredible republic that our founders created. And, you know, I'm proud of that. But at the same time, I'm sad that it's all been lost, that we no longer have the nation uh, that our founders created for us, that we have lost all that it means to be an American. There, it used to be so special to be American based on the type of nation that we were and the type of individuals that Americans were and what it meant to be an American and how unique and how privileged it was. Today, you know, even though, you know, America is still regarded as the top uh, nation, and again, a lot of that is a function of, of debt and it's all an illusion, uh, but the difference between an American and a European or anybody else these days is, is not nearly as great as it used to be. You know, if you have never read the Declaration of Independence, and I'm sure most of you probably had at some point, maybe in seventh grade civics course, but you might want to take another look at it and give the entire document a read. But I'm going to read just part of the second paragraph because this is really probably the most important aspect to get to understand the essence of what America is supposed to be and what American government is supposed to represent and do. Because this is important now with all the socialists that are out there, right, that want to uh, redefine America, uh, democratic socialism, to actually understand, you know, the role of government in America. I mean, governments can have different roles in different countries, but in America, there is a certain role that government is supposed to have and that it had for a long time, but that it no longer uh, fulfills. So here's from the second paragraph of the Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That is key to what America is all about. The framers are saying that governments are created from the people they govern. You don't start at the top down, like Europe with a king, right? It's, it's it, free men are creating government. They are ceding some of their power to government. And why are they doing that? What is government's role? Government is there to secure life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, our unalienable rights. Government is instituted to secure the rights that we already have. And it's very important to understand that and the distinction between securing our liberties and our rights and giving us stuff. Government is not here to give you stuff. Government is not here to provide you with things. Government is not here to educate you. It's not here to take care of your health, to feed you, to clothe you, to house you. Government is not here to provide you with happiness. Government is here to allow you to pursue happiness on your own, right? There's a big difference between giving you something you don't have and protecting the things that you do have. Because that's where governments, they get their power 
from individuals. Individuals don't have a right to use force against other individuals. I don't have a right to steal property from my neighbor, but I do have the right to prevent my neighbor from stealing property from me. But what happens in a country is individuals get together and they give that authority to a government, a central authority to act defensively. So governments are there to use force to secure what we have, right? To protect my life from somebody who would take my life, to protect my liberty from somebody who would infringe on my liberty, to protect my property, right, from people who might steal my property because acquiring property is part of the pursuit of happiness. How do I pursue happiness? Well, I acquire things that make me happy, among other things. I, I acquire property. I get a house. Maybe I get a car, get a boat. Right? Maybe I get uh, a cell phone. I get a television set. You know? And of course, a lot of things, you know, leisure can make you happy. Family can make you happy. Uh, all sorts of relationships can make you happy. But you're allowed to pursue these things. The government doesn't do this for you. The government doesn't give you stuff to make you happy because the government doesn't have anything to give. If the government gives you something, they have to take it from somebody else. But that's not why governments are instituted. They are not instituted to use force to take things from other people and give them to you. They're there to use force to protect what you have and make sure other people don't steal it from you. You know, even uh, John Kennedy, President Kennedy, who I'm not a big fan of Kennedy. I think he's a very overrated uh, president. But one thing that he said was ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. But unfortunately today, everybody is asking what their country can do for them, right? Independence is not just American independence from the British. It's about individuals being independent, right? Being self-reliant, the rugged individual. I mean, we might as well rename our holiday Dependence Day, because everybody in America wants to depend on the government. They want to look to the government for everything. They want the government to provide them with the things that they think they need to be happy. That's what all this socialism is all about, right? It's about government giving you stuff that you don't have because you think you have a right to be happy. You don't. You have a right to pursue happiness. You don't have a right to achieve happiness. That's up to you. But the beauty of the American system is if government sticks to this limited powers that it has, more people are happy. If the government just gets out of the way and protects you, right, and, and, and basically has a system of private property and a rule of law so that individuals can freely pursue their own happiness, secure in the knowledge that their life, liberty, and property is being protected by government, they can achieve happiness. If you surrender all those powers to the government, if you have an all-powerful government and you charge it with making you happy and providing you with things, then nobody is happy. You think people were happy living in the old Soviet Union or in, in, in China when it was communist? There's a lot more happiness in China now that now that they have a lot less government. Now that it's not really a communist country from an economic perspective, there's a lot more happiness. And, and so the reason that Americans initially were able to achieve the degree of happiness that they did was because we had a limited government. And we pretty much held true to these principles throughout the, the 19th century. It wasn't really until the 20th century that we started eating away at the foundation of our liberties. And the, the whole character of the nation really started to turn 
uh, through first with the populist movement and then, of course, with the New Deal uh, during the, uh, the Great Depression, governments gained tremendous power. And really the nature of government changed and what it really meant to be an American changed. And we've been on a, on a downward slope ever since. You know, when I look back at the revolution and wonder, you know, would America be better off had we remained part of Britain? Had we never had a revolution? It's hard to say. I mean, we had, again, a great 19th century. It's hard to imagine that the century would have been better had we been, uh, you know, a colony of Britain. But then look at how Britain governed Hong Kong. I mean, the British governed Hong Kong much better than they governed themselves, right? The British, you know, went down that slippery slope into socialism, right? But not in Hong Kong. I mean, they did a beautiful job with Hong Kong. And maybe they would have treated the American colonies as well as they treated Hong Kong, right? And so who knows uh, what would have happened to the United States if we remained a colony in the spirit of Hong Kong. Now, who knows if that uh, would have been how... You know how Britain would have uh, would have treated the United States, but if you remember, why did we even fight the Revolutionary War? Right, taxation without representation. But if you look at the amount of taxation that the colonists were, you know, rebelling against, I mean, it was tiny. I mean, it wasn't like King George imposed an income tax on the colonists and he sent a bunch of IRS agents over here. I mean, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, that would have. I mean, that everybody would have. Uh, joined in on the cause. And I think only about a third of the the country was even in favor of independence at the time. But believe me, if there was an IRS that people had to keep track of their wages and pay 30% of what they earned to King George, I mean, every single person would have been revolting. I mean, the taxes were tiny. And, And obviously, we're taxing ourselves in ways that are far more oppressive than anything that King George would have even contemplated in his wildest dreams. Yet somehow, you know, our government is able to get away with it. I mean, just because we're able to vote, just because we have representation. I mean, I would take low taxation without representation, then high taxation, confiscatory taxation with representation. Remember, that's why I moved to Puerto Rico. See, I moved to Puerto Rico and I can no longer vote for anybody in Congress and I can't vote for president. So I no longer have representation but I also no longer have the taxation. I don't have to pay the personal income tax living in Puerto Rico. I don't have to pay the capital gains tax. I don't have to pay the Obamacare tax. So I'm okay with that, right? I'm okay with losing my representation if I can get rid of all that taxation. No, I still have to pay some taxes, uh, but I don't have to pay the majority of the taxes. And I think today, Americans, self-governing Americans, living under the tyranny of Washington, D.C., Americans today have it far worse as far as their liberties and their freedoms than colonists did prior to the Revolutionary War. So even though we fought a Revolutionary War to gain freedom and to gain liberty and to become more independent, we actually accomplished the reverse. Now, it took a long time to, to go full circle or more than first circle, but we are now clearly, by any objective measure, less free than we were before we fought the Revolutionary War. And we face more regulations and higher taxes coming from our own capital, Washington, D.C., than anything that King George could have dreamed up. In fact, just in our state legislatures, right, on a state level, we're facing higher taxes than anybody in the colonies faced uh, from the crown in Great Britain, just on the state level, 
before you even start factoring in uh, what's going on uh, from Washington, D.C. So it's, you know, it's a great American holiday. But for me, again, it's it's bittersweet, right? Because I, there's parts of it that that make me proud and, and, and excite me about being American. And there's other parts that just make me sad. When you think about what it used to be to be American and what it means now, I mean, how much more enthusiastic I could have celebrated this holiday 100 years ago, 150 years ago. Just imagine just celebrating how special it was, the uniqueness of America, this this experiment in freedom, in liberty, in limited government that had really not been... Uh, replicated anywhere else in the world. We were we were unique. We were pioneers, right? We were going where no man had gone before. And what we created was magnificent. We produced the highest living standards that the world has ever seen, not just for the rich, but for the middle class and for the poor. And remember, I mean, Europe had a huge head start on us. Asia, I mean, there was nothing here when the pilgrims landed, right? I mean, you know, America is a young nation compared to a lot of other nations. So we we got a late start. The rest of the world had a big lead on us. But we over you know we surpassed everybody. We caught up and then passed everybody by a mile. And the reason we were able to do that is because we were freer than everybody else. That is the comparative advantage that America had. We had a comparative advantage in freedom. And freedom means the lack of government. The less government you have, the more freedom you have. And the freer you are, the more prosperous you are because the more that you produce, right? The, you know, it's, it's private enterprise that lifts living standards, that raises people out of poverty, not government. Government just redistributes whatever wealth the private sector creates. But the more government you have, the less wealth the private sector is capable of creating. And, and so the key to a high living standard is a small government. And, and that's what we had to the, to the degree that no other country had it. And so that's how we had this big lead. But we've blown our lead. We no longer have the highest living standards in the world, not even close. And how did we blow this massive lead? You know, by blowing our comparative advantage, by blowing up an enormous government, by adding regulations and taxes that made us no better than any other country. And in fact, made us worse than a lot of countries. And now the only thing propping us up is the fact that we're able to keep borrowing money to buy stuff that we can no longer produce because the world is dumb enough to lend it to us. So we have this gigantic global Ponzi scheme in our debt, and we can keep on going deeper and deeper into debt, borrowing money that we can never repay to import products that we can't afford and didn't produce. And I think, again, we are on the verge of a major economic crisis that's going to bring America's living standards back down to earth and more commensurate with our actual productivity. We've been living beyond our means and that's going to end and we're going to have to live within our means. And since our means have been so dramatically reduced over the years, uh, that's going to be a, a, a rude awakening for uh, the vast majority of Americans. And in fact, as Americans have to try to restore the savings that they no longer have, that's going to require uh, underconsumption. That's going to be require that Americans live beneath their means to rebuild their savings. And again, those are sacrifices that nobody... Uh, you know, wants to level with the American public that they're going to have to prepare to to endure, right? Trump would rather talk about how great everything is. It's the greatest economy ever. Everything is fantastic, right? But, you know, this is going to be a huge, huge problem, not only for Americans, but politically and for the Ameri- Americans' future, the way they're going to react looking at this wave, this socialist wave that is building in this country and which could easily 
sweep through the country by 2021. I mean, look what's going on in New Jersey. I noticed that over the weekend that New Jersey decided to raise its top tax rate on millionaires to 10.75%. That is going to be the tax rate. That's going to be close to the rate in California, right? I think California gets up to 13%. So it's not quite California yet, but 10.75% for millionaires. Now, the top rate before this was 8.97%. But here's the thing that maybe nobody in Jersey seems to understand is that last year, before the Trump tax hikes, you could deduct your 8.97% state income tax against your federal income tax. So if you lived in New Jersey, even though the New Jersey tax rate was 8.97%, the effective tax rate was reduced by about 40% because you got a deduction from what you would otherwise have had to pay on your federal taxes. Well, that no longer exists. So if you have to pay 10.75% with no deduction, if you compare that to the rate from last year, the effective increase in the state tax is 110%. So millionaires, and you have to earn, I think your income has to be above 4 million. So, you know, they, they try to make it a million or more, but I think it went to 4 million or more. So this is, you know, really top earners. But now the top earners are going to be paying double, double, more than double the effective tax rate on their marginal income as a result of this tax hike. Now, that creates an enormous incentive to get out of Dodge, to leave New Jersey. You know, David Tepper, who I think was the biggest taxpayer in New Jersey, he left a couple of years ago and it blew a whole hole in their budget. I mean, that was a big deal when David Tepper moved down to Florida. Well, how many more David Teppets are going to leave? You know, Tepper is probably like, my God, I'm glad I left. Look what just happened. I, you know, I, he read the writing on the wall. Because, you know, once you see the, the debt and the government growing and you see the politicians just taking the easy way out by bleeding the rich, you leave before you lose any more blood. See, now Tepper's gone. But now that he's gone, he doesn't have to pay any tax. So it's not that they're getting 10.75% from David Tepper. They're getting zero from David Tepper. Right? Now, if they had left the tax rates lower and they had the state budget in balance and Tepper wasn't afraid of tax hikes, he might still be there. He may still be paying something to the government of New Jersey, but now he's paying nothing. So now other millionaires have to pick up the slack. So now they're looking at 10.75%, but I bet there are a lot of millionaires in New Jersey already looking at real estate in Florida. And if they're smart, they're looking at real estate in Puerto Rico because there they could dodge two bullets. They can get out of the federal income tax. Uh, But they're going to leave. And what does that mean? That means that a lot of this revenue that they're anticipating that they're going to get from this tax, because they look at all the people who have incomes above $4 million a year, right? And they say, oh, we're going to raise the tax by this much. And they figure that they're going to get this much incremental revenue. But what they don't realize is that income may not be there to pay the tax because it leaves. The person who was generating that income left the state. So now, not only are they not getting the 10.75% they thought they were going to get, they lost the 897 they used to get because by raising rates, they caused the guy to leave. And now they get nothing. Right? And so even if they're getting the 10.75 from some people 
that may not be enough. That extra income, the extra couple of percent may not be enough to offset the 9% they lose from the people who leave. So now what do they do? Well, now let's raise taxes again on the people who are dumb enough to stay. And now more of those people leave. So it's a self-perpetuating spiral. Every time you raise taxes, more people leave. And because people leave, now your tax base goes down. And now you got to raise taxes even more on the people who are still there. And now they leave and so on until there's nobody left to tax, right? That is the old adage on the problem with socialism is sooner or later you run out of other people's money. And of course, sooner or later, New Jersey is going to run out of millionaires. So now they're going to have to tax everybody. Right. So right now it's like, oh, you know, let's just tax these millionaires. We're not going to cut government spending. Right. We're going to keep on giving people free stuff. But of course, it's not free. Somebody has to pay for it. They have to steal the money from the rich in order to give to the poor. And eventually the rich don't want to be stolen from anymore. And they leave. I mean, how great a state does New Jersey think it is? I mean, they, they think it's so, you know, it's such a great privilege to live in New Jersey that you'll just stay there no matter how much the, the population wants to steal from you for the privilege of living there. And of course, you know, when people move out of a state, it's not just their personal income. You know, they may have employees that they move out of state. Uh, they no longer hire local uh, workers. They, they don't shop locally. They don't eat in local restaurants. I mean, there's a lot of uh, economic activity that is lost and a lot of additional tax revenue that is lost as wealthy people pull up stakes and move out of a state, right? So this is like, you know, you're, you're, you're on a downward spiral but again, like I talked about earlier in the podcast, this is the problem in America, is that we no longer respect the traditions upon which this nation was founded. The principles enshrined in our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States, none of this stuff matters anymore uh, because the whole character of the nation has changed so dramatically over time. That's why you know, Donald Trump, you know, he's got a new uh, Supreme Court appointment that he needs to make. And of course, there's going to be a lot of talk. I mean, do we want somebody uh, who is an original constructionist, you know, somebody who thinks the Constitution means what it says and it should be interpreted uh, based on what the founders meant when they wrote it or the people who think, oh, no, it's a living, breathing document and, you know, it means whatever the Supreme Court says it means and it changes with the times and all that nonsense. Look, my father used to always tell me that the Constitution is clear it doesn't need to be interpreted, right? It's not written in Chinese. You can read it. You can understand it. It's pretty easy to understand it. What the Constitution has to do is be enforced, not interpreted, right? When people say they want to interpret the Constitution, that's a code word for ignore it. They don't like what the Constitution says, so they want to pretend it says something else, and so they call that interpretation, which I think is very interesting because, you know, the Constitution is written to bind the government, right? It's not about individuals, right? The laws are not meant to restrain individuals. The laws are written to restrain the government, right? That's why they're there, right? Thomas Jefferson said, we shall bind up the government in the chains of the constitution, right? Well, those chains are gone, right? I mean, the government isn't bound, it's doing whatever it wants, but it's interesting that the laws that bind individuals, right? They're not up to interpretation, right? You know, you know, you can't steal, right? There are a lot of things that you're not allowed to do, and it's not up to interpretation, right? There's a legal principle too, called being void for vagueness, right? If a law is vague, then it's void. What does that mean? Well, if you can't understand it, if its meaning is not clear, then how can you obey a law that's vague? And so, if it's vague, it's void, and it's not a law, right? So laws have to be clear. They're not up for interpretation. 
So if the Constitution you know, is so ambiguous that it needs to be interpreted, it would be void for vagueness. It's not. You know, it's a very concise document, and it, it, it specifically lays out all the individual powers that are, are enumerated, all the things that the federal government can do, and there's not much that the federal government can do. And then it, it, then it says what the states can't do, right? And if it doesn't ban the states from doing it, they can do it unless they're prohibited by their own constitutions. Remember, every state has its own constitution that limits the power of their own government. All the federal government did is impose some extra limitations on what the states can do, and the rest was left to the states and the people. But the constitution gives the federal government unique powers, limited powers. They are, they are individually enumerated in the Constitution. And if the federal government is not specifically authorized to do something, it can't do it. Very simple. You don't need to interpret it. Just, hey, the government wants to do something. Okay, well, look at the Constitution. Does it say they can do it? If it doesn't say they can do it, they can't do it. But that's not the country we have. Now, you know, the government can do whatever it wants. They find a way to distort the meaning of the Constitution, to bend it and twist it, to render it irrelevant. So basically, the government does whatever the hell it wants, right? And it's not bound by any Constitution. And of course, the framers felt the Constitution was so important that everybody who holds office has to swear an oath to defend the Constitution, not the country, the Constitution, from all enemies foreign and domestic, right? So it's the Constitution that everybody swears an oath to defend and uphold and protect. Well, the Constitution means nothing. So what are you swearing an oath to? The whole thing is a farce because the Constitution is now meaningless because it is ignored under the guise of interpretation. So it probably doesn't matter much uh, who Trump uh, is going to appoint because nothing is going to change. Nobody is going to turn back the clock. They're not going to throw out all of these unconstitutional laws because they're too worried about upsetting precedent. But meanwhile, the precedent is bad, right? I'd like to see some uh, Supreme Court members that are willing to overturn bad precedent and restore the Constitution and restore the meaning of the Constitution. If you want to change the Constitution, there's a way to do it. You've got to amend it. Right? You can't just will a change. You just can't pretend it's changed by relying on some court judges. And a lot of this stuff, too, doesn't even make it to the Supreme Court. You've got circuit judges or lower court judges deciding all sorts of things. And the issues never make it to the Supreme Court. Uh, and all this stuff really is unconstitutional. If you actually read and understand the Constitution, almost everything the government does is unconstitutional. If they simply abided by the Constitution, if our court system which I think is the branch of government that's failed Americans the most. It's not the executive and it's not the legislative. It is the judicial branch. And it's interesting that, you know, people hold judges probably in high regard, right? If you look at the popularity of Congress, it's typically very, very low, right? Approval rating of Congress is very low. The president, a little higher, but, you know, still less than half the people usually approve of the president. But everybody seems to approve of the judges. They think the judges are doing a great job. They're doing a terrible job. It's the judges who allowed the executive branch and the legislative branch to usurp all this power that was not given to it by the Constitution. They are supposed to provide the checks and the balances. They are supposed to strike down all these unconstitutional laws that get passed. It doesn't matter if it gets you know, passed by Congress and signed by the president. If it's unconstitutional, right? you gotta, you got to strike that law down. But the judiciary, the Supreme Court, doesn't strike down anything. I mean, every once in a while they do something, uh, but it's minor. I mean, think of all these laws that get passed 
and none of them are declared unconstitutional. You know, I said the first time the government passed an income tax, the, the Supreme Court struck it down as being unconstitutional in 1896. Can you imagine the government coming up with a tax today that the Supreme Court would say, oh, you can't do that, it's unconstitutional? The government can do whatever it wants. I can't, I can't imagine any tax that they could think up that the Supreme Court would strike down. Of course, you know, if they enforce the Constitution, they would strike down almost every tax that we have. But they no longer do it. They just let the government do whatever they want. And I think a lot of that is because the judges on the Supreme Court are in favor of big government. They want government to be a nanny state. They want the government to provide all these free things. And they know that if they enforce the Constitution, they won't be able to do it. So they look the other way, right? And they, they hide behind the necessary and proper clause, the elastic clause, commerce clause, whatever it is, to kind of justify all these government intrusions into our individual liberties because it satisfies their own personal agendas. And of course, they want to be liked, right? They don't want to be seen as the people who are standing between uh, the voters and free stuff, right? They don't want to be, they don't want to tarnish their image. So if the government is trying to provide free stuff, the Supreme Court doesn't want to say, well, you can't have it because it's unconstitutional because in order to provide it, they had to steal money from other people. But of course, there's nothing in the Constitution that authorizes the government to provide all this free stuff. I mean, if the founding fathers wanted the government to provide things, well, they, they could have empowered them to do that, but they did not. And they knew that the government, the federal government could only do uh, what they were authorized to do. And it's a very short list. And I want to circle back. I didn't get to talk about what happened in the uh, truncated market today. The Dow Jones closed down 132 points. We blew a, a triple-digit lead early in the day. The Dow opened, I think, up over 100 points. So another one of these days where we made the lows in the closing you know, 10, 15 minutes of trading, I think we got to down about 150. Very weak technical day. Transports looking particularly weak to me. Uh, down 81 points, but very close to breaking a significant trend and moving average in the transports. You know, part of what's probably hurting the transports is the relentless rise in crude oil prices. We actually topped $75 a barrel early this morning. That was the first time we did that, I think, since November of 2014. We got up to 75.27. Then all of a sudden, Al Jazeera broke a story that the Saudis were going to follow Donald Trump's recommendation to produce even more oil. They didn't say how much. Remember, Trump tweeted about an extra 2 million barrels a day. They didn't commit to that. Again, I don't even know that the Saudis have that much extra capacity above what they're already producing. But when they confirmed that they would be increasing production, oil prices plunged from 75.27 high all the way down to a low of 72.73. So about $2.5 lost then there was a recovery. Oil prices are still trading as I am recording this podcast. We're now, though, positive on the day. We're at 74.19, up 25 cents. So another positive close on the week, another new high for the move. So obviously, oil is a big component in the transportations because it's a cost of doing business. And so that is particularly weak there. Uh, overall, the broader markets were also down, down 65 points for the NASDAQ, the Russell 2000, However, did manage to eke out a gain. I didn't even notice that until I put it up. Uh, but not a new high, uh, but it managed to gain. But I think the stars were the gold stocks. And, you know, gold was down about 11 bucks yesterday. We actually made a new low for the year yesterday. We got below uh, 1250 In fact, it was the first close above below 1250 
but we rose back today about $11. So we recouped yesterday's losses. We closed. I don't know. If, I don't think the market is closed yet, but I'm looking at it right now. It's at 1252.30. So we're back above uh, 12.50. I think I saw it trading earlier in the day at 12.55, maybe a bit higher. So a strong day for gold, but an even stronger day for gold stocks. And you know, gold stocks were not even down that much yesterday when the price of gold was down 11 bucks. But on today's uh, $11 move up, gold stocks were much stronger. The um, XAU was up uh, 2.17%, GDX up 1.8%, GDXJ 2%. So pretty decent moves on an $11 move up in the price of gold uh, that simply recovered the $11 loss from the day before. And there were some gold stocks that were much stronger. I saw a number of names up 3 4 5%. I think the standout intraday was Yamada that at one point on the day was up more than 8% on the day. It closed up six and a quarter percent, but there's no news. And you know that's a lot of buying coming in. And as I've said several times on recent podcasts, the fact that gold was going down, but gold stocks were not really going down, that people were taking advantage of the weakness in gold to accumulate positions in gold mining stocks, shows me that the people investing in gold mining stocks anticipate a rise in the price of gold, that gold is going to hold uh, the current support level. And I've said, you know, this has worked pretty well over the last several years, both up and down, right? If gold is breaking out, but gold stocks don't conform, confirm that, if gold stock traders have been selling into gold breakouts, that's always been a sign that gold's going to come back down. But then if they're buying into gold breakdowns, it shows the reverse. The key question is going to be, what happens the next time gold gets up to 1300 1350 are the gold stocks going to once again fail to confirm that? Uh, or are the gold traders going to start to anticipate for the first time that gold actually breaks out? I think a lot of that is going to depend on the economic data or maybe more specifically uh, how the market reacts to the data, whether or not the Fed reacts to the data. Remember, we need to see uh, the, the narrative changing that the U.S. is some kind of island of strength and a sea of weakness that we're going to win the trade war because we're going to suffer the least damage, which is untrue. Remember, the trade wars are about tariffs. Who pays tariffs? People who buy imported products pay the tariffs. So Americans buy more imported products than anybody. So we're going to pay more tariffs than anybody. The tariffs fall on the buyer of imports not on the seller of imports. So we're going to be a lot more damaged by these tariffs uh, than the markets feel. The dollar, I think, is very vulnerable, even though it has been gaining strength again. It sold off again today, reversing yesterday's gain, back below 95, uh, last on the dollar index, 94.63. So running into a lot of overhead. Meanwhile, I've read a bunch of articles that all the speculators are loaded up on, uh, on dollars, and, you know, all the asset managers, you know, you look at some of these global funds that, you know, can invest in the U.S. or internationally. All these guys have shifted their portfolios. I think there's something like 65% domestic now, only 35% international, which is probably a high for the domestic allocation. So all these managers are certain that the best place to be is in the U.S., which means when they discover how wrong they are and they want to lighten up their U.S. exposure and increase their international exposure, which is what they are going to do, obviously that's going to be a big reallocation trade and you want to be in front of that. 
right? Because these guys are wrong. These portfolio managers that are betting big on America, that are betting big on the dollar, are wrong. They don't understand the U.S. economy. They don't understand the problems that it's facing. They don't understand the reversal in Fed policy that's coming. They don't understand inflation. They don't understand that inflation is not a byproduct of economic growth. We're not seeing higher CPI numbers because the economy is overheating or doing well. We're seeing high CPI numbers because we printed too much money. Inflation is going to accelerate as measured by consumer prices despite the fact that the economy is going to be decelerating. We could go into recession and prices can continue to move up. It is stagflation that nobody expects and it's the dangers that you don't expect that hurts you, right? The ones that you're looking out for, the ones that you're worried about, right? Those aren't the ones that get you. It's the ones that you don't know about, the ones you're not worried about. And believe me, I've said again, on these stress tests, the Federal Reserve is not worried about stagflation. Nobody on Wall Street is worried about it, right? Only me, right? And maybe a few other people out there, but in a very, very limited minority. And when this hits, this is going to be a huge move. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I still think it, it makes sense to ride this out. Because when there's a turn, right, when all the people who are on the wrong side of this trade try to get to the right side of the trade, the movements are going to be enormous. And there's a school of thought that says, well, Peter, you know, maybe I should just, you know, not necessarily be in gold or gold stocks or foreign stocks. Let me wait till the turn. And then once the trend is clearly turned, hop on board. Now, you could do that, but then you miss the turn. And I think some of the biggest returns are going to happen in the turn. I think that process is going to be violent and quick. And there's going to be enormous moves uh, in that direction as a lot of people try to, you know, to shift positions at the same time. So I don't want to miss that. I'm willing to ride it down for a while so I don't miss the turn. Because I think if you try to avoid the downturn and then wait till the market clearly turns, by the time you get back in, it'll be much higher uh, than when you got out. And then, of course, the risk that you run, if you chase the market after a huge spike, there could be a pullback right after you get in. Then what do you do? Are you going to bail out again and just whipsaw yourself? I think if you if you know you're on the right side of the trade and everybody else is wrong, you sit tight. If anything, you press your bets by increasing your position and wait for the inevitable to happen. And then you know when it does happen, all the people who are on the wrong side of the trade are going to say the exact same thing. Nobody could have possibly seen this coming, boy. Well, this was totally unpredictable, right? This is a this is a hundred year flood. Nobody could have seen this happening. So don't blame me for losing all this money because everybody else got, you know, blindsided by this event that nobody could have possibly predicted. But there are people who predict it because it's not impossible. You just have to be thinking clearly, right? Why why was there so much money made on the short side of the subprime market? Because very few people saw it coming. Everybody was betting on uh, the real estate market because nobody thought real estate prices could fall, right? Well, they were wrong. And when they found out they were wrong, it was a game changer. Well, everybody is wrong on what they believe is going to happen in the U.S. economy, in the global economy, to the dollar, to inflation, to interest rates. It's all part of the same narrative that they don't understand. And when they figure out how wrong they are, everybody's going to be surprised. But the people who understood it are going to be rewarded. And I think the payday is going to be extra large because we had to wait extra long to receive it. Because during that interim period, right, the problems got bigger. The bubble got bigger. So now there's more air that's going to come out of it. And that means, I think, more money coming into the pockets to the people who anticipated it and who had the patience to wait for it. 
Oh, finally, I want to mention that Bitcoin debate that I participated in last night over at the Soho Forum in New York. It was sponsored uh, by Reason. I debated Eric Voorhees. The, uh, the issue was would um, Bitcoin or some other existing cryptocurrency replace uh, the dollar or our current fiat-based, government fiat-based monetary system. I, of course, was arguing the negative. Eric was in the affirmative. And um, technically, I guess I lost the debate. That was the consensus. Uh, but you could decide for yourself because the entire debate has been posted on my YouTube channel. Not that great quality. I'm not sure who was filming it. Uh, I think that only Brockwell actually was live casting it on her site. And so we copied it from there. So, you know, you got to bear with the quality. Uh, but, you know, you could still... Uh, hear the debate. I mean, it was a much more, um, I guess, sophisticated level of discussion than the one that I had with Max Kaiser uh, in Aspen, Colorado, where Max was screaming half the time like he was a evangelist, you know, hallelujah, praise Bitcoin. Uh, Eric uh, was much more level-headed. He's a very smart uh, guy, uh, very passionate, very sincere, I think, in his belief in the ultimate success of Bitcoin and is willing to concede that it might not work and uh, recognizes that there is a lot of risk to the price. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of things that I, I was able to have a pretty uh, solid discussion with him following the debate. We went out for sushi. Uh, a group of us did. But, you know, we sat at the same table and, and managed to talk quite a bit uh, about uh, about him. And I learned quite you know, some things about his role in, you know, the birth of this whole thing that I didn't really understand. And he was very sophisticated, uh, early uh, proponent, big guy in crypto, managed to make a lot of money, has a lot of success. And uh, I think he earned his success and I wish him well. I just, you know, I cannot take the leap of faith necessary uh, to get to where he is on Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency. I mean, I wish I believed in it, well, I didn't even know about it when he first started buying it, but I, I found out about it not too long after. And hey, hey if I could have, uh, you know, made that leap many years ago, then I would have bought it and, you know, I would have participated in the profits. But, you know, it's not the only bubble that I've missed out on, but it is the bubble uh, that I most regret missing out on. And I think I mentioned that. So I don't want to steal any more of it. Just go to my YouTube channel and watch the entire debate. You know, by the way, I mentioned on my last podcast that I was coming close to 200,000 subscribers. We're not quite there, but I did see a pretty big bump in my subscriber growth. Uh, we picked up a few hundred, uh, four or five hundred over the weekend. We're now at 199,915 subscribers uh, as I record this. So I'm sure that uh, over the 4th of July holiday, uh, we can top 200,000 subscribers. You know, one word... Uh, on the voting for the debate. Not that I want to take anything away for, from Eric or diminish his victory. I mean, it's possible that, you know, he might have won uh, even if there was an honest vote. But the way it works is before they have the debate, they ask everybody what side they're on. And you vote, right, on the website. You either vote in the affirmative or in the negative. And then they do the exact same poll after the debate and they ask, well, which side are you on? Are you on the affirmative or on the negative? And they judge the winner based on how many people change their minds. Now, personally, from my experience on this topic, it's very hard to change somebody's mind. 
right? Either they believe it or they don't. I mean, it's almost like going to a church and trying to convince people there's no God. I mean, if there's an atheist there, he's probably still going to be an atheist. And if the guy is devout, really religious, there's pretty much nothing you're going to say to make him renounce God, right? And and that's kind of the way I look at uh, Bitcoin. By now, you either believe in it or you don't. And I think very few people would actually be, uh, you know, influenced to change their mind based on an hour discussion uh, between me and Eric, right? I think if anything, the people who believe in Bitcoin simply be, you know, they have their beliefs enforced and reinforced and the people who don't believe in it, you know, the same thing. I mean, what I say resonates with them. Yep, yep, he's right. And what Eric says resonates with the people who own Bitcoin. But what happened is a lot of the people who were in the audience, everybody's buddy-buddy, it was a highly, you know, one-sided, everybody was pro-Bitcoin or at least most of the people, not everybody. But what these people decided to do was they were like, hey, let's all pretend, right, that we're anti-Bitcoin. So let's let's vote in the negative before the debate so that after the debate, we can vote positive and pretend that we were persuaded by Eric and we changed our mind, right? And, and then he'll win the debate. And that's exactly what happened, right? And I think the reason is people who believe in Bitcoin, the last thing they wanted was Peter Schiff to win a debate on Bitcoin, right? Because, you know, I am a... Uh, prominent Bitcoin uh, detractor, and they don't want me to win a debate. They want to make sure I lose the debate. So they rigged the vote by dishonestly pretending uh, that they agreed with me before the debate, but that they agreed with Eric after the debate. Now, that was, you know, my suspicion, uh, but it was actually confirmed to me by somebody who was there who, who basically posted on my Facebook page, yep, you're right, I was there. And people said, hey, remember, vote no before the debate so you could change your mind and vote yes, right? And why do people that own Bitcoin want Peter Schiff to lose a debate and Eric Voorhees to win? Because they want people to know that the pro-Bitcoin side won because they need more people to buy Bitcoin. I mean, that's the whole idea, right? You got to keep you know, the thing going. You got to keep getting more people in to the scheme. You need more buyers to propel the price higher, right? Just to keep the illusion going, just to make it so that the early guys have somebody to sell to. So they're constantly marketing. They're trying to get new people into the ecosystem, new buyers to sign up. And part of that is to have uh, a Bitcoin debate where the guy who's pro-Bitcoin wins and the guy who's anti-Bitcoin loses. So who knows what the actual results would have been had none of that gone on. I mean, maybe Eric still would have won, uh, but I might have won, or maybe it would have been a draw. I mean, again, I don't think many people that were in that particular audience were going to have their minds changed. Now, maybe if there was somebody that was there that legitimately had no opinion, but look, the thing got sold out, right? It was sold out for a long time. Who bought all those tickets? People who are interested in Bitcoin, that's who bought the tickets. I mean, people who don't have an opinion, they didn't buy a ticket, right? You know, they certainly didn't rush to buy one. So it wasn't a representative audience of people who really hadn't thought about the issue. And then we're going to make a decision based on, uh, you know, what we said. They already had strong, deeply held beliefs when they sat down. So again, I doubt very few people, if anybody, actually were persuaded to change their mind. But according to this vote... I had 40% people that were supporting me when the debate began and only 31%, I think, supported me when the debate ended. And I have a hard time believing I lost that much support in, in just one hour. But decide for yourself. Check out the video. It's on my YouTube channel. And by the way, when you're there, subscribe and put me over the 200,000 subscriber mark. 